The Apostle Paul to the Philippians says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not looking out for your own personal interests, but indeed for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the morphe, the form, the very essence of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being found, being made in the likeness of men. Because found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father." So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. May God add his blessing to the reading of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, a message about the Christian spiritual life lived abiding in the example of the exemplar, the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself more than any of us ever could, providing us the way of exaltation. Having this pattern ourselves, we will follow him to the cross and to the glory that is beyond. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. We always afford that to you because there is a problem with us in terms of succumbing to personal sin in thought, word, or deed. And the solution to that as believers is not to gain our justification again. It's not to go back to the cross in terms of your initial salvation or your justification or your redemption. It is the fellowship forgiveness that reestablishes you on prayer footing with God when we confess our sins. Let's always uh, keep short accounts with the Lord, and I'll give you that moment if you need it now as we get into the Word. We have a pneumaticos before us, spiritual material. We need the Holy Spirit to equip us to uh, absorb it. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise and glorify and honor you for revealing yourself to us, giving us the wisdom to magnify your name with the words that we say, the choices that we make, the lives that we live. Father, when you challenge us in our faith, we know it's a chance for us to love you in making the choice that honors and pleases you, and that it's a personal, relational choice every step. We've made this choice tonight to be here. We're going to make these choices many times through the evening to stay with the material, to focus, to concentrate. As we begin, Father, we open our hearts, as we open the Word to know you. Father, bring contentment as we consider the content of Isaiah 32. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Surprise, we're in Isaiah 32 for the last time. 
uh, this week, Isaiah 32. You're going to miss Isaiah 32 as we go forward. You're going to think back and weren't those great times. We spent all that time in Isaiah 30 through 32. And, um, you almost don't want to leave verses 1 through 8 of Isaiah 32. In this judgment oracle, in the middle of a woe to those, beginning in chapter 31, you have this, hey, interlude, there's coming the kingdom. Well, as you've seen, this outline is a gazillion times. This is that chunk of Isaiah 28 through 33, the six woes. And, and this is the part that we're in. Woe to those who go down to Egypt. That's the context of this. And we saw last time in detail what I'll run through by way of a review. Chapters, uh, chapter 32, verses 1 through 8, which is its own little piece of the future coming kingdom. Godly government is on the horizon. It's coming. Righteous, successful, holy, just government is uh, possible because nothing will be impossible with God. And that's the message of Isaiah 32, 1 through 8. Behold, unto what is right will reign a king, and leaders unto justice will rule. And I put it in color because I put it in Hebrew order, and so you could see how tight Isaiah is in his, in his rhyming of thoughts. Unto what is right, unto justice will reign, will rule, king and leaders. But then we said, what's really neat in, in, in a Hebrew ear when you hear what he's saying is that the, that the, the Melech will malak, the king will king. Remember that? And the Tsar will sarar, the rulers will rule. And that's something that happens in Hebrew and it doesn't really uh, come to our ears at all. And so if this is kind of a unique moment for, for you and for it, it just, it's just not done very much that someone would take time, dig this out in Hebrew and then show it to you. And I'm just telling you that, um, people, you could study Hebrew and learn Hebrew and go dig this out for yourself. Or you could just, we could just run through it verse by verse. And you could see these kinds of things, but this is the kind of stuff that is happening in the art, the way Isaiah composed, and this is one of the reasons he's called the prince of the prophets, because he's such a poet. And that, all I'm saying there is that God cares about aesthetics. He cares about the way it looks. He cares about the way it's put together. I was driving today, and I, I thought about aesthetics. You know what aesthetics is? It's the study of that which is attractive or beautiful. That's a an interesting topic that actually we spend a lot more time, energy, and money on than we think because we're high-minded people of uh, stoic uh, philosophical stance, but we're really not. We're really worried about the way it looks. I was driving around today in balmy 26-degree uh, uh, Connecticut, and I noticed that one of my favorite things was happening, and it doesn't happen very often here anymore. It was white everywhere you looked on the ground, and it was blue in the sky with some puffy white clouds, and that is beautiful. And it's a beautiful thing that you, because the, the white is kind of reflect, the blue is kind of reflecting down on the white. So it's kind of a white with like a blue tint. You got to take it where, where, you, where you can get it, the, the beauty of this life. And there was today. And um, if you're staring at your phone while your dad's driving you around or whoever, uh, you, you're not going to see that. You're, you're going to miss it. So look for the things that God has for you. Lately, I've been noticing that we have had some um, red sky at uh, at night, uh, sunset, I've also seen some red sky in the morning. And um, morning's the warning and the night's the delight. And so I've been looking for how that to work out lately. A lot of fun things in the wintertime.
here in the marshmallow world. But, uh, but uh, God cares about how it looks, and he's showing you that, and we have a lot to cover, so let's get with it. In verse 2, each, the ruler and the king and his rulers, that's us, coming with Jesus and his coming established kingdom, each will be like a refuge from wind, a shelter from the storm, streams of water in a dry region, a shadow of a mighty rock in a parched land. What's blue? The refuge. What's red? The threat that you need refuge from. And he does it, and this is the order it is in Hebrew. A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. He does the whole verse like that, and this is what poets do. They riff. They think of multiple synonyms and find clever ways to include them in what they say. And that's what you have in verse 2. But the idea here, obviously, is that when the king rules with his entourage, with his administration, it's going to be great. It's going to be good. It's going to be the resolution to the conflict. It will resolve that which is in conflict. They will not be blinded, who? The eyes of those who see, the ears of those who hear will be fully alert. And everybody can see, see it in the middle. And the eyes and the ears and the outside are the not being blinded and being alert. The heart of the, the rash will understand knowledge. The tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. And he will not be called any longer the fool noble. Notice it doesn't say they won't call fools noble. They said they won't do it anymore. Because 2,700 years ago, that was a problem that they were calling fools wise. They were the smart ones. And the 2,700-year-old material that we're reading about is speaking directly to our time in that way. It's still the way it is. You can't go the narrow gate and go for consensus. You'll always end up on the broad path if you go for consensus. And that's what you see today. The fools are called noble. And the rogue will not be said to be generous. The ungenerous person will be called generous, whose leadership is uh, to self-aggrandize instead of to provide freedom and security for those under his government. And then I put verse 6 in colors because it's pretty complicated, but it's pretty neat. The fool speaks folly, and in his heart he does wickedness. The word speak, as we said last time, is davar. It's a common word for speech, and the noun is davar. It means word. And so he words, but that's the word speaks. He speaks, the, the naval speaks uh, navala, he speaks folly. The fool, the fool speaks what fools speak. And uh, so he's rhyming in, in sound, assonance, and in thought throughout this passage. And his heart, his lavav, uh, his heart, his lev, uh, Asa, it does Evan, it does wickedness, okay? That sets you up. But then to Asa um, Chonef, godlessness is our closest translation for Chonef, to do godlessness and to speak toward God error, uh, to Devar, to Yahweh. Um, I don't know why I translated that God, that should be Yahweh. Pardon me. That is an error on my part. Talk about speaking toward God error. I didn't even translate. This word right here uh, is Yahweh. It is not Elohim, it's Yahweh. To, toward Elohim, toward Yahweh, error. All right, so notice how tight that was. Remember, to do, to do, wickedness, godlessness. Folly is error toward God. The speaking is the same verb in both cases. So it's really tight. Uh, poetic arrangement where in the middle is the heart doing wickedness and doing godlessness. On the outside is speaking folly, speaking error. So what do you do with that comparison? 
What's going on in the heart is the center. What's going on in the speech is on the outside. Well, the speech is coming from within, and so the focus is the heart, and that's just straight out of um, Matthew chapter 5. It's not your hand or your eye. It's your heart that's really the problem. To keep unsatisfied the soul of the hungry and, to, and drink from the thirsty to withhold. So really tight the way the fool in rulership is described. And um, uh, notice that his, his outcome is the second piece. This little ditty here, to keep unsatisfied and to withhold, is the actions that the ruler takes. He's speaking here on the outside. His heart is wicked and godless on the inside. And then in his hands, he's withholding. He's a, he's a holder backer. Now, this is apparently one of the greatest um, um, attacks you could make on a ruler. I say that because of Genesis 3.5. This is the original accusation that gives Satan his name. He's the accuser because he is accusing God of being hold, of stingy, of holding back as a ruler. You're not a good ruler because you don't give us what we want or what we might have. You are stingy with it because you want it for yourself. And um, this is the problem of rulership. This is the problem of governance. I'll never forget um, that little message, little conversation, I believe, between Phil Donahue and, um, and that economist um, that was so smart in the 80s. No. No, the, the, the one that said, where are these angels, Phil, that are going to administer this system that you think, are, this socialistic system? Where are these perfect humans that aren't going to you know, keep their hands out of the cookie jar? They're not going to pay themselves, you know, in the typical communist arrangement where you end up with everybody poor except a very small oligarchy of the wealthy pulling all the strings. You see, that's what you end up with. You end up with, um, we say the policy is everyone has equal in common, but some animals are equal, more equal than others, as Orwell wrote in Animal Farm. You know, the, the, the ruler is supposed to be free and setting a system that enables people to thrive. But in this case, this is the problem. The fools in rulership hold back. They withhold. They, in their systems, will destroy the economy. They'll destroy the, 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 the money makers, the, the, the employers, the businesses. And um, they're supposed to be feeding them in the sense of making wise governing decisions. Now, this is not, someone, some might say, well, see, you're saying right here that the government should be providing for the hungry. And let's look at the 20th century and what capitalism has done in the third world for the hungry. The, the, do you know the numbers? I don't know the numbers off the top, but the, there have been reports of the standard of living rising throughout the developing world because of the principle that all boats rise with the water, with the tide. And um, yeah, you don't want the government to be giving you the job you want the government to be securing the infrastructure in which the job can, can, be, uh, can be built and, and, and given. And uh, that's my opinion and application of this. And when you see government shutting down uh, economic growth by their policies, like, I don't know, today the chicken little policy, the sky's falling, you know, we can't, we can't live on planet earth anymore. We've got to you know, we can't, can't, we can't live the way we're living. We've got to get rid of all these people and their cows and their cars and all this. Um, what this is going to do is, is impoverish millions, billions of people um, until, well, we have, we have the 20th century, but 21st century style. We do it bigger. We had a small version of it with the millions of people in the Great Leap Forward uh, with Mao, and it's going to be done in, with billions 
uh, or hundreds of millions perhaps in, the, in this coming century if things continue as they seem to be going. Um, my favorite illustration of what I'm talking about is where, um, where uh, the Cornwall Alliance people will point out that when you say we're going to use ethanol instead of crude oil in the cars, well, where do you get ethanol? You get it from corn. Well, corn or maize, that we, what we call corn here, that uh, they're trying to feed the catfish and all the other things, that is poor people food. That's, that's food for people um, that's very uh, abundant. It's hearty. It's saved the pilgrims, you know, um, when the Indians taught them how to make corn, how to grow corn. Uh, but if you start burning it in your cars, then that means that there's a different market structure for the, for the raising of corn. So now that's going to cause several unintended consequences like the fertilizing of these cornfields to be economically sufficient or whatever, uh, uh, efficient. Uh, you're going to get runoff more, and so that's going to have an effect on the water supply from the chemicals that you use to, to uh, feed the corn and poison the ground. Or the, or, the, or the insects or whatever. And then that's going to have an effect on the price of corn on the market. And then that's going to change the way the poor people have access to that, that crop. I was once told that uh, I have a friend that goes to Brazil. And, and I said, what's the coffee like? And he said, the people I'm visiting with don't drink the coffee there. It's too valuable. It's too expensive. They send it. They, they export it. They can't drink their own coffee. There's a market for, the, for that coffee. It's not worth it to them. Because they have to, they have to live. And so... Um, we don't think about these things because, well, there's so many intricacies within any market. But uh, all I'm trying to say here is that, um, as uh, David Noble once, once I heard him say, economics is what you eat. This here is a discussion of economics. To keep unsatisfied the soul of the hunger and drink from the thirsty to withhold. See, in Orwell's animal farm, all the animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Um, we had a perfect example of this at, at this latest climate summit where we're going to send a, our envoy and he's going to fly all over the world. And uh, when asked, do you know how much carbon you're emitting into the atmosphere to go to these rallies to tell people to stop driving cars? He says, that's a stupid question. I'm doing good work for the climate, for the, for the world. See, it's okay for me, but it's not okay for thee. And, um, um, this is, this, the Bible calls this, uh, when you're not leading or ruling to the economic benefit of those under you, that's one of the marks of folly. And, um, what are you going to do about it? Well, um, we're coming to the kingdom. This context is about how Jesus and his rulership, there won't be fools ruling. Won't that be great? There won't, they won't, there won't be this. And the fool will be a fool, and he won't be in power. He won't be called noble. And this is the way um, ver the last two verses work. The rogue, his weapons are evil. Remember the word rogue is a play on the word weapon. So the, the, the rogue is a, a description of a person in terms of a weapon. And then he says his weapons again. The rogue, his weapons are evil. He wicked schemes devises to destroy the afflicted with words of falsehood, even when he speaks to the needy one, justice even when the needy person speaks justice. And so if you're listening, you're not seeing the, the, the screen, this is going to be hard to hear because I'm putting it in, I'm, I'm saying interlinear English. But he says, he says that the, the schemes that the wicked devise, the wicked schemes that the rogue devises, this leader that's an evil ruler, are to destroy the afflicted with his, with his lies. 
Now that's satanic government. That's satanic rulership leading with lies. Satan's the father of lies. And, um, and if you take it that way, that lies are from Satan, and he's the father of lies, and the government that is done through lies is, well, that, wow, that, that puts the world in a whole different light, a, a light of biblical revelation. That, that's exactly what is going on with the kingdoms of the earth. That's Psalm 2. They're all in rebellion against God under their father, the devil. With words of falsehood, they're destroying the afflicted. And the opposite of this is even when the needy one parallel to the afflicted one, even when the needy one speaks justice. So he's right, the poor guy's right, and the wicked, the wicked ruler is evil, and he's using his words to destroy the man who speaks justice, who speaks the right thing. And so destruction versus justice, I believe, are paralleled, and this is what it looks like for the rogue to rule. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Now, what's the rogue's motivation for lying? Why does he do it? Milton Friedman was the guy who forgot his name. The reason I just thought of his name again is because of how he would say self-interest. Self-interest, he would call it self-interest. Because there aren't any angels, every human being is sinful and flawed and broken and self-interested. And so the best economic system in a fallen world is going to be the one that allows for self-interest to work without infringing on someone else's rights. That's the idea of, of uh, of the market system. Uh, part of this, part of the idea. The other part that I think is more important and intensely biblical is that God is the creator of all the stuff and he gives it to who he wants. And so he protects private property, thou shalt not steal. He protects private property, says thou shalt not covet. And so um, that's a God distribution delegation thing. And, and protecting that ends up being one of the hallmarks of any righteous system, even when you have sinful people administering it. But anyway, that you, so you can always identify when the system gets corrupted uh, in wickedness. But he says, the noble, noble plans devises. This is a plan words, the nadiv, nadiva, uh, noble plans. And devise, uh, devises ya'at. Same word here as devises. So this is definitely in contrast. There are two kings in contrast, and one of them is, on, is in favor of the poor. He's going to be with the righteous who speak justice, the needy one, who are the target of destruction of the wicked. And so it is a wickedness-righteousness comparison. And so there's going to end up in the end of this little um, poetic structure, there's going to be a, a final comparison of wisdom and folly in the outcome. But the, remember that little rhyme at the end, uh, and this is verse 8. The Nadiv, the noble, noble plans devises. And he upon noble plans arises. And the word noble plan, plans occurs in both places. That's the product. This is almost like what Jesus is talking about with the, with the fruit and the tree. A noble person internally is going to make noble plans. And you are not right because you do the right thing, but they go together. You're right. And because you're right, you do the right thing. And, and so it's, what I'm trying to say is it's not quite true that you are what you do, but what you do comes from who you are. And that's what it's like to bear God's image. Everything he does is righteous, loving, holy, good, because it comes from him, because he's righteous, good, and holy, and loving. And, and you are going to produce what is uh, inherent to the nature of of your internal character. And that's why you really want to take a hard look at yourself all the time. Um, the concept in First uh, um, Corinthians chapter 11 of self-assessment is really valuable. When he says, if we judge ourselves, what does he say? 
What does he say? If we judge ourselves, we would not what? We would not be judged. What does that mean, judge yourself? That means take a hard look. Take a good long look at who you are internally and make the assessment. And where you see a need for adjustment, well, well that's called change of mind. That's um, the uh, archaic English word based on the Latin is repentance. So now that brings us to verse 9, and we're going to hear the tone very much change. We're going to talk to the women. Um, when judgment from God is going to come on Judah, and uh, the Assyrians are going to wipe out, or I should say take over, every city except Jerusalem, and they're going to circle and, um, and hem Jerusalem in in a siege. When this comes and you have famine, that's going to affect the women. And it, it is not to say that just the women are in view. He's talking about the nation with the perspective specifically of the hardship the women are going to face. Now, this is a passage that, uh, for first, first of all, to really understand what's happening, you have to know that there's this thing called a woman. And the, the other one is a man, and there are these two. And they're not the same they're similar, and they're compatible, and they're made to be compatible, and it's a God's uh, original design, sort of heavenly factory sort of thing. You can read about in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, and then in Genesis 2, how it came about. So this is about women, and he's going to call them uh, Nashim because um, Isha, and uh, the, the plural of, of, of Isha is Nashim which is weird because it's a masculine plural ending, but it's just an irregular how it works in this particular word. And um, what you want to gather here is uh, not misogyny that women are being corrected, ha-ha, um, so that Mars and Venus are arguing with each other, okay? Um, that's not the way to think about this. The way to think about this is, remember when I said we need to self-evaluate and self-assess? There's a problem with the women that everything's going along fine and they're not being reflective and they're not self-assessing and they don't fear the Lord. And the big theme that everyone needs to absorb in verses 9 really through 14, the big theme is that there is a right repentance when faced with the righteousness of God. And they don't have it because they're not thinking of him at all and they're just bopping along like everything's fine. They're dwelling in security and carefree. And it's wrong because God's wrath abideth on them. And so the, the repentance is that they should be quivering and quaking and trembling and, uh, and horrified at what's coming. So it's a warning. It's a way of warning. And if we'll internalize it, it'll help us with the fear of the Lord. Wives at ease rise up. I put through this passage uh, the eight odd commands or maybe nine commands that come up. You don't see so many imperatives stacked together like this. Next time I do imperative uh, for OT 101, remember, remind me, Aileen, to, uh, to say uh, Isaiah chapter 32, verses 9 through 13 has a lot of good imperatives. Wives at ease. Now, every word here is pretty exciting to me, but this word is going to keep coming up again and again that I've translated at ease. It's an adjective sort of describing them, and it's in the feminine plural, and it's uh, sha'an. And it's really sha'anan, sha'anan, and there's like three N's in a row, N-A-N-N-O-T-H, shana, I, I could say, I said it earlier, sha'anan-noth. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a triple N, you don't see that very often, so 
it was kind of cool. But the translation of this is it's like an adjective to describe somebody that's at peace, at ease, everything's fine. As in the days of Noah, they'll be giving in marriage and trading and doing, going about their business, and then the wrath of God comes and, um, and that kind of thing. Uh, they're at ease. And he says, rise up. Now, that's interesting and thematic because of what we just read. I want to bring this out. It's kind of a transitional moment in verse 8 when he says, the noble, the, he upon noble plans arises. So get up, ladies, is a totally different arising in verse 9 when he addresses the women. Wives at ease, rise up, hear my voice. Who, who, what word is that here? What do you think that's the word? Those that you don't know Hebrew. You know a word where it commands someone to listen? Listen up! Where does the Bible say that? Do you know the Shema, Yisrael, Hero Israel? This is the word Shema, okay? Hear my voice. So rise up, hear my voice. Daughters, Banoth, that's daughters, who are Botchoth, which is very strange that I don't have anything here to tell me how to pronounce any of this. So I'm just going to say Botchoth. And that is from the word Batach. We've seen that word throughout this whole poem all the time, batach. It means to trust in in the sense of relying upon. It's a strong word for faith. It's one of these emblematic or sort of picturesque words for faith. And it, it could be translated reliance or being sturdy or being stabilized, something like this. And it is to rely on or take refuge in even. Uh, I wouldn't translate this take refuge in. I would, take, I would say to rely on or to trust in. But they're trusting. But it, it's not faith here. It's that they're fine. And so from that idea of batach, of being stabilized or made sturdy by faith, they're uh, in sort of a trip euphoria. They think everything's fine. Everything's fine. Nobody's, nobody's going to uh, get us where everything's okay. And so they're in a, a carefree mode. And that the at ease and the carefree comes up a lot through this passage. Daughters who are carefree, get, give ear to my word. So do you see the rhyme here? Everybody look up here. Here. My voice, give ear to my word. That's Hebrew poetry. Hear and give ear are the same. They're stated differently, but they're the same. My word, my voice, those are the same. And that's the way Hebrew poetry rhymes. The wives at ease, the daughters carefree, that's a rhyme too. It's women in different phases of life that have the same attitude. Everything's just fine. There's nothing wrong with me. It's kind of a latent self-righteousness, self-satisfaction. It's all good, feeling fine. You know, I've, I, this has occurred to me a lot. When you think about the reason why you do something you shouldn't do, you know, we joke about this, but it's really serious. Do you know why you commit personal sins? Because you feel like it. And in, in, in terms of our common slang, our common usage today, you do the thing you shouldn't do because you feel like it. You covet, you're, you, you, you gossip, you tell a lie, you, whatever the thing is, you think more highly of yourself than you ought to think because you feel like it. That's just how you feel. Because apparently, I'm just drawing a conclusion from that fact, there must be some sort of neural spiritual superhighway between my sinful nature, which is the source of my lusts, and my feelings. There, it, there has to be some sort of tight connection and I think it's probably like synaptic connections in your brain. I don't think it's your brain necessarily, but I think it's like it, where the more you practice those, the more you become uh, quicker at those kinds of sins. You feel the urge to, to say something you shouldn't say, and the more you indulge in that, the more it becomes habitual. 
That's how habits are forming in terms of brain function. Well, um, what about the connection between the work of the Holy Spirit in you, which is not the lust of the flesh, is not the deeds of the flesh that you feel like? What about the work of the Holy Spirit and your feelings? What about the urge to righteousness? What about the desire that you, why did you do this? Well, I felt like it, the right thing. Does the Bible talk about the Holy Spirit's works in you in terms of how you feel? Is there anything about that in, in the scriptures? <laughs> Think Romans 8? I'll go with Galatians 5 and verse 22. Joy is not a thought process. Joy is not Bible doctrine circulating in your stream of consciousness. Joy is the right response that we have in our affections to good news. We rejoice in the Lord always because the Lord is always there. He's always your Savior. You always have him as your, as your, uh, as your destiny. He's your present Lord, and he's your Savior, and he's your greatest hope, and he's your destiny. And so that's joy. So why don't we have that superhighway? What's the problem? Why is there not this tight connection between um, the Spirit's urgings and my, my feelings to, to righteousness? The affection or love that I have for my Savior in any kind of love, Peter's phileo and, and Jesus saying agape, I'll do all of it. Why is there not this tight uh, urge to righteousness in us? And I think it's by practice. It's practice. It's habitual. And that means that there, we're going to ask God to do some training with us. I think the more you look at his word, it is supernatural in its effects. And its design is to, to reinforce those pathways of righteousness, of desiring the things of God. Remember, we started tonight with Philippians 2.13. For God is the one working in you both to want and to do what pleases him, to will and work, to want and to do. And that wanting, that's how you feel. There's a, I'd like to be successful today, Lord, in your agenda. I'd like to be pleasing to you. We have it as our ambition. I'm not trying to say that you live your life, your Christian life uh, by your emotions, but I would say that as a functioning human, the whole person is in view. And if there is no joy in your love for God, if there's no joy in your service, you render to God, you're, good, you're getting it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And so just a thought. I think that we're responsible for this. It's not just, well, this is how it is. I just feel like sinful, being sinful. Yeah, you do. But there are other feelings that God wants you to have that come from, uh, from obedience, and when I say obedience, I mean be filled by the Spirit. I mean meditate on the Word day and night. I mean get, get about his, your Father's business and look for Him to do a work in you. All right, so the, the, um, the rise up here and give ear are the commands in verse 9. And then we're going to take a break on, on commands and then have a prophecy. Days upon a year, literally, or a, a little more than a, a year from now. Days upon a year, you will quake, O carefree. What do you think the word for carefree is? Well, it's that word batach as an adjective, the botchoth, sorry, botchoth. I love to hear a rabbi say it, like a Hebrew speaker say that. Um, um, But uh, this is that word translated carefree before, the daughters that are carefree. 
So he says again, days upon a year you'll quake, O carefree, for the vintage has ended, the gathering will not come, and this is going to be famine. You're not going to have the lifestyle that you're used to. This isn't saying that the women are just a bunch of drunks. It's not saying that they just want alcohol, but you did have the prophecy about the drunkards in Ephraim and Judah in the first couple of woes, remember back in 2023. All right. So you're going to be, you should be worried now, even though you're carefree, you should be not carefree. You should be uh, repenting of that flippancy and be in, in mortal fear of what's coming is what he's saying because of the famine. Tremble is a command, harad is a command. And then he says that word again, that sha'ananoth, that at ease one. So I've tried to translate consistently throughout, tremble at ease. Quake, O carefree ones. So Ragaz, um, the batoch again. See, just very consistent. He's rhyming through here. And um, notice that the call for repentance is really clear. You are uh, very comfortable with your rebellion, but what you should do is be quaking in fear at the wrath that's coming on you. This is the call for the fear of the Lord. Tremble and quake. Now, why don't they have this? Why are the women that he's describing haughty? Why are they at ease and at peace with their wickedness. Why are you at ease and at peace with your wickedness when you are? Why is that the problem? Because you're ignoring the creator. Remember now thy creator because you are forgetting that he has an opinion and he's there because you have slipped into a a very foolish and arrogant mindset that if you can't see it, it's not there. That if it's not something I can feel, taste, touch, or see, or hear, then it's not real. You become an atheistic materialist in your practice. And the solution, to the, the, way, the, the way out of that forest, as far as I understand, is prayer to talk to God and hear from, hearing from Him in His Word, or in other words, your actual relationship with Him through communication. This is why this problem that we're describing of this functional atheism, this um, this atheistic functional materialism that people slide into. Um, this is why we have the something moron problem. Do you know what a something moron is? That's somebody that has a Bible in his hand who can speak English or the, the language the Bible's written and can read it and can read the Psalms and say, oh, this is how we talk to God. Okay, just open your heart to him. Just hold forth. Tell him your lament. Tell him your praise. Tell him your joy. You can pray the Psalms like start there. Instead of doing that and taking what God gave us and seeing the example of Jesus and spending more time with him and his word, well, we say, well, I don't get anything out of this. I need something more. I'm immediately a something moron. I've said that the Bible is not enough. The word isn't enough. And so I put this aside and now I'm on to the races. I'm looking for mysticism. I'm looking for some sort of emotional experience. I'm looking for some sort of uh, mountaintop high sort of experience. And, um, and I'm going to start pretending like God's revelation is irrelevant. And if I can get a feeling, that's where relevance lives. And so now I'm looking for uh, teachers that can conform to my desires and tickle my ears and all that. And, and that's um, that's not the way, obviously. God's word is alive and powerful and it will change you. And there's no other method in God's design and God's protocol for growth and service but to know him through what he said. So he said, look, I made you with the brain and eyes, which, which amounts to your capacity eventually to read. And then I gave you words written on pages. That's a, that's a hint 
the, the existence of our brains and our eyes and words on pages, these are all somehow supposed to come together. I'm not quite sure how. How would that come together? Well, it wouldn't be that we would read to know about God, but we would be opening up to God and he would uh, inform us of himself through what he's written. And so what's the principle he's showing us here? That uh, when you're um, opposed to God and he's bringing wrath, you should not be uh, having... Uh, uh, having shopping sprees with your friends. You shouldn't be having a uh, girl's night out. It's not time to, um, to go see what's going on at the club. It's time to repent and dust and ashes and prepare for the wrath that's coming. And that's, that's the language. And so this is all an illustration uh, for this coming wrath because we are in Isaiah, one of the prophets of doom and deliverance. He says... And uh, strange words, uh, uh, rare words, expose yourselves as the best we could do with, um, with uh, this one. And, um, and then strip down is the way the halot suggests the best gloss for this word. So there is an undressing. And it, the idea is that you're in luxurious robes. Uh, you're like going out to the club like a lady's all done up. And then, no, you get out of your party clothes and you put on sackcloth. So you're going you're gonna to switch your clothes because inside you've switched from gloating to mourning. That's the idea. Gird about the loins with, and the, the, the usual girding about loins is with sackcloth. So most of the English translations supply these words. They're not in the original. It just says gird about the loins. Okay, so this is tough. What's happened is you have the attitude of the women being described as in need of repentance. And so now you have the visual, the portrayal of repentance that he's calling for with the way they're dressed. With the, now, why does, the, why does God's word suggest that it would be important to women with how they're dressed? Why would that be the illustration that would fit the change inside reflecting on the outside? Because 2,700 years ago and today, women care about that. And you could say, well, I care about that too. And maybe you do, but probably not as much as your wife. And that's why uh, sometimes she has suggestions. And you're like, oh, really? Okay. Because that, that's, I'm just saying that he's talking to women here. And it, it's interesting. And then it gets very difficult to translate. In verse 12, we'll talk about the controversy. It says, upon or all, Shaddaiim, okay, Hebrew students, a rare duel, Shaddaiim, Sofdim, Sofdim. All right. What is happening here? All right. What you have is uh, uh, a participle. I know that's a, that's a cow participle, and we could call it lamenting. Never means beating. This word does not mean beating. It means lamenting or mourning or grieving. So that's the first thing. Um, people have said, well, since it means lamenting, the way they would lament back then is they would beat their breasts. So that's how that, and which is a very interesting image. And um, this is some foreign stuff. The way these people uh, mourned and grieved was very different. The ancient world grieving process is real different from us. They would hire, you know, the Roman world a few hundred years later, they're hiring people and paying them to professional mourners to make sure that all the right crying gets done. So it's a big outward process. But this word is, um, now notice, shin, dalit, you don't need to know all that. And then uh, a yod, and then you have a sin, dalit, yod. And so this is, it's definitely Isaiah rhyming. 
But, but we're kind of struggling with this phrase, upon breast lamenting. Um, I'm aware of an interesting conversation among Hebrew scholars about this verse, like what's going on here? And when you're doing a static English translation, one of the fun things to do is to say, well, what did grandpa do? We're, we're, we're translating for English readers. Well, what, what, did, uh, what did grandpa um, uh, uh, Lancelot do in the translators for the King James? And they, a lot of times, said, well, what did Grandpa Miles do? Or what did uh, Coverdale? Or what did Tyndale? Or what did Wycliffe do? And you could see this traditional uh, appeal to authority, and it ends up being the scholarly consensus. And I, ca- I guarantee you, when Isaiah wrote this, he was not thinking, how are the English uh, guys going to translate this? It wasn't part of that conversation. So it doesn't help, in other words, to find consensus if the consensus is wrong. If grandpa gets it right a lot of times, and that's good, he's skilled, but he's not skilled just because he's grandpa. And so if, if they get it wrong sometimes, so I, I don't think that's really helpful. But anyway, the point is that um, when you come to translation, you're not looking for the superior authority that we know because um, of the Holy Spirit-inspired King James guys. That's not, that's not how this works. It's a conversation that we're having, uh, all trying to get to what Isaiah is th- saying in the inspiration of the Spirit authoritatively. And here's one solution that the New English translation came up with. They said, what if the dot here is actually supposed to be here? Because that does happen. And so it's not shadim, it's shadim, shadeh, with a, with a clitic mem. Uh, and so it, sh- it should be Sadeh, not Shadaim, which is very possible. So you have it right here. What if that's here and it should be upon or over the field lament or mourning? And the participle is carrying the force. And actually, they, they, they propose that this should actually be in the form of an imperative. So the, the idea is that there's been some scribal um, malfeasance in the copies that we have. That's what they're trying to say. And, and this is the kind of stuff you have to do with manuscripts. Like, we don't have Isaiah's manuscript. We have copies of copies of his manuscript. So, so this is what they came up with. They said this fits the context better than, I know they're stripping down and putting on a sackcloth about their loins, and so you, that perhaps the breasts are exposed. There was a, there's a study that's been done that in the ancient world, the ancient Near East, that was uh, one cultural way people would show grief and mourning. They would not just tear their garments, but women would strip and, uh, to the waist, and then, and then um, that, would, that would be a, sh- a show of great grief or sadness. Um, and um, I know that that's speaking to us probably differently than it would speak to them, but I would imagine not much differently. So and nevertheless, this is the net said, the New English translation said, over the field mourn, over fields of beauty, over the fruitful vine. And so instead of it being about the ladies, what they're wearing, it's over back to the agricultural thing. But here's the thing we can interpret, okay, for sure. Um, this is not suggesting that uh, any way that there should be public nudity. That's the first thing. What it is saying is that you should be grieving instead of rejoicing. There is appropriate feels to God's word. There's an appropriate affective response to when God says, you're in trouble with me. You shouldn't then smirk and be like, oh, that's, that's really something, God. You should be with the Ninevites on the dung hill with, 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 uh, with uh, Job. You should be mourning and grieving. And that's what the, they're suggesting. Uh, that's what Isaiah is suggesting is that they should change their hearts. Now, it's a lot of verses and a lot of me talking about it, kind of talking through how the Hebrew works to get this very simple principle. There's an appropriate affection to go with the word of God. There's a right feeling 
to bring to bear. There's a right mood. You need to match him. He's the boss. If he's, if he's uh, uh, playing with you, then you can play. If he's not, you, you can't. And there's a right way. So when God's wrath is coming and they're, um, they're sitting around, just imagine like just sitting around talking girl talk at the nail salon while this giant Indiana Jones bowling ball is rolling toward the nail salon. And it's just going to knock, flatten everything. And they're just like, yeah, you know. And, and that's the attitude. You should be paying attention to what Isaiah said. Of course, they will not listen to Isaiah. And they will not lament and mourn. And it was good advice that they would, if they, if they would. Over the ground of my people, thorn bush, briar, she grows up. Literally, the ground is feminine. She's the one growing. So this ground is producing thorn bush and briar. Indeed, over all the houses of joy, exulting, the exulting city. I've translated over consistently through here because this preposition, upon or on, is on the basis of or because of. Oh, you're mourning over these fields, over the vine, over the ground that's producing garbage plants, over the houses of joy, the exulting city, because they're all going to be destroyed. For the palace, this is the explanation for why you should be mourning. For the palace is abandoned, the crowded city has been forsaken, Azov, the heights and watchtower become cleared fields forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. Now this word forever is an interesting one because you're like, uh, is he talking about, uh, this word is Ophel, is this the heights of Jerusalem? That's what he's talking about. He says the, they're going to become cleared fields ad olam until the long time foreverness. Well, alam is flexible. It can mean forever, but it isn't always. And um, I'll tell you why, because in verse 15, we turn another corner. Until, odd, until it is poured out upon us the ruach. Until the spirit is poured out on us from on high. And the wilderness will be an orchard. An orchard will be considered a forest. This is the prophet Isaiah. He's a prophet of doom and deliverance. And so we turn to corner in verse 9. Women, you're, you're partying, but you should be you're lamenting. And you should lament because the, there's going to be a, a waste to um, God's place until the Holy Spirit, until the coming of the promise of the new covenant. Now, Jeremiah is um, a successor to Isaiah, and we consider Jeremiah 31 to be the locus classicus, like the main place that the new covenant is prophesied, that God would build a new covenant. He would cut a new covenant between himself and Judah and himself and the house of Israel. The northern and southern kingdoms would get a new covenant as opposed to the old covenant, Mount Sinai covenant, what God did with Moses at Mount Sinai. But Isaiah is before Jeremiah, and he says, until Ruach is poured out upon us from on high. Well, when you read Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, 31 through 34, the New Covenant passage talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out on his people. And, and this is, what I'm trying to tell you is there are many New Covenant passages in the prophets. There is this new arrangement where God puts a spirit in the hearts of his people Israel. And notice I said his people Israel. And that doesn't make us think we're Israel because we have the Holy Spirit. It helps us understand how wonderfully blessed and privileged we are that before this day that he's talking about, we already have the Holy Spirit. So until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness will be an orchard. Now, this is an interesting thing. What is the Holy Spirit, look up here, what is the Holy Spirit being poured out on all of us personally, persons with the Holy Spirit? What does that have to do with the wilderness 
becoming an orchard and the orchard being considered a forest, meaning lots of undergrowth, everything's more fruitful, everything's more um, vivacious. Why? Uh, why is, is Because the kingdom is the people and the environment. Because in the kingdom, when the new covenant is established, and, and, and uh, um, I should say, what's the word? We say it's ratified, but then it has to be uh, like instantiated or inaugurated. When they're enjoying the king in his, on his throne and the new covenant is in force for Israel and the nations, then you're going to have perfect environment. And we're back to the stuff in the first eight verses of chapter 32. So the, the, there's going to be a, a waste forever until. There's going to be a problem for you forever until. And it will dwell in the wilderness, justice. And righteousness in the orchard will abide. I just went ahead and showed you the, how it rhymes. Wilderness and the orchard are parallel. It will dwell, it will abide. Justice and righteousness. Because, well, justice and righteousness is in the focus, is in the center. This is what the kingdom is going to be like. It will be the work of righteousness, peace. The English is much, the English Bible is much easier to read on verse 17. Let me read it in English. I meant to do that. And the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. All right, I'm going to put it in, in, in Hebrew order. It will be that the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, the maintenance of quietness and trust forever. I translate maintenance of quietness because I know that's very rough and, and painful, but that's the hifil of this word to, to be quiet. So it's the making of quiet. It's this, that's, the, that's the way the word is stated, so I've showed it to you. And trust. What word is that? That's that word that those women are carefree. It's batach. It's the word for trust or, um, or one who has sought refuge, um, been stabilized. Peace is parallel to quietness and trust in this idea, these outcomes of righteousness. The work and the service of righteousness. This is why Jesus said those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. The nature of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised having read Isaiah 32 that Jesus, when he offers the kingdom, says it's righteousness that is the coin of this realm. It'll be in righteousness. It's not going to be outward obeisance. It's going to be inward righteousness with the outward results. It's going to be heart producing what comes out of the hands instead of just being whitewashed tombs as the religious crowd was in Jesus' day. It's real righteousness. And this is... Do you want to serve the Lord Jesus? It'll be in righteousness. Do you want to work in his coming kingdom? It's going to be in righteousness. Get on board now, believers, with righteousness. Think about what it is and what it means. And it's not self-righteousness. And this will be a shock to some of us. It's not necessarily what I feel like. That's not what righteousness means. Righteousness is what God wants, what God thinks, what God requires. And my people will reside in a settlement of peace and in dwellings of security and resting places of ease. So three synonyms again for how nice it's going to be. It almost sounds like that verse um, in the first part in verse 1 through 8 when he said um, that all the things that the, that the kingdom um, administrators, the, the rulers would be, a refuge from the wind, a shelter from the storm, water in a dry country, shade of... of uh, and the shadow of a mighty rock, the, the same desirable things here on the other end of the oracle. My people will reside in this desirable place. Now, this is what we want for 2024. We want to have an election that has results. We want to see rulership and government where we're in peace and our, our property is secure. 
and we're in resting places of ease and we can all, you know, make a good living in a stable environment and then spend some of it to, to bless our families with a nice vacation. And um, that's what we want. We want the government to set the conditions on its part that allow us to be able to do the things that we need to do with our resources. And that's what we're after. And um, sadly, uh, Isaiah 32, 18 is a prophecy, not of our election cycle or our constitutional republic or any of the things that we're enjoying now. This is what's coming in the kingdom. And so I'll tell you two things. The first one's bad news in the near term is that we're not going to be able to get this out of the government. Um, that's the near term. But the good news on the other side is that we're guaranteed absolutely that this is the nature of the coming kingdom. There's no other way. And if you're opposed to this, you're on the wrong side and there is wrath. And God has very little, uh, Lord Jesus is going to have very little patience as he rules with a rod of iron for foolishness. Verse 19, and it will hail when it comes down. Now we're back to wrath. We're back to wrath in verse 19 and verse 20 is, is, is to peace. And so there's a, there's a final little stinger. Can you look at the colors? I know it's, we're toward the end, but look at the colors. The first in verse 19, it says, Barad, um, and so Bet Resh Dalit, um, he's doing the thing again. Isaiah, you're doing that thing again where you say the same sound twice because that's Hebrew assonance or Hebrew poetry. So the things in red are the same sound. Things in blue are the same sound. Things in purple are the same sound. And so what's in red, it will hail when it descends, when it comes down. And what that sounds like is the same thing twice. It says, Uvrad Beredet. And they heard it. They heard that. Ha'ir. And when it, it will hail when the city, when the, when the forest, ha'ar, sorry, ha'ya'ar, when the forest comes down. Well, we've talked about God's wrath described as uh, destruction and laying waste. And this is a picture of the judgment that God's bringing, I believe, with the Assyrians. And he's saying there's, there's coming this external pressure and, and we've already heard in this little series of oracles, Assyria described as a, as a tempest, as a storm coming. And it makes me think, honestly, of Matthew 7, when the rains came down and the rivers rose up and the house fell because it was built on the sand. But this is the wrath part and of the doom and destruction, doom and deliverance of the doom part. When it comes down the forest and when the lowliness is made low, when the lowliness is in a verb, made low of the city. So when, the, when you get, when this, and we don't speak this way in English, but that would be like when the city hits bottom, when the city gets leveled. That's, but it's, it's Hebrew poetry uh, to say the same thing twice. And boy, did that look clever to the people that first heard that, that were like, I, I see what you did there. There's a lot of, I see what you did, did there, Isaiah, that kind of comes out to us. But anyway, this is God's judgment, and you don't want to be on that side. You want to be in verse 20. How happy you will be who sow upon all waters, who send out the foot of the ox of the donkey. Isn't that encouraging? I thought that would be encouraging for you, who sow upon all waters. Um, I am not, uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to say how old I was before I realized what Ecclesiastes 11.1 was actually saying when it says, put your bread on the water, cast your bread upon the waters. I don't know why I've always had this um, uh, visual of this that is not what he's talking, has nothing to do with feeding the ducks, you know, putting your bread on the waters. Um, I didn't think that, but I just didn't, I was like, what is that? What is, what is going on? Um, you go to take your, take your goods to market. It's talking about shipping and, and grain and, and 
um, sending your stuff to market because you don't know what's going to happen. And so you, and the, the rhyming verse in, in verse one, the rhyming thought of Ecclesiastes 11 is um, you sort of diversify because that's how you get a return. You got to get in, into the game to, to win. And so, um, so upon the waters is talking about um, uh, industry. You who sow on the waters, who send out the foot of the ox and the donkey, meaning that you're working the land, you're plying your trade, and it's the people in peace as a summary of those who are blessed after God's wrath has been exhausted. I think verses, um, I think verses 19 and 20 are two uh, opposite pictures. That the wrath of God is coming when the hail takes down the forest and the cities drop to its knees. But how happy will you be when you who sow upon all waters to send out the foot who, who are doing agriculture and uh, trade? Because when you're in wrath or, or receiving God's wrath for folly, um, you can expect the, the, the prophet of doom. But when you're looking to God and you're in his coming kingdom, then you have wisdom and you have the fear of the Lord and you're blessed. I think that's the final wisdom kind of stinger for this difficult, wonderful, challenging uh, poetic structure in um, Isaiah chapter 32. The biggest takeaway, obviously, to me from Isaiah 32 has been that the coming kingdom is going to be glorious. The near-term wrath of God, whether it was Assyria or the coming wrath in the tribulation, um, is something that you really don't want to you don't you don't want to come for you, and the attitude of the people um, matters. That like if you're flippant and arrogant with God, then that's part of why the wrath is coming, and so the fear of the Lord will save you from that. Our Father, thank you for the word and the challenge of Isaiah 32. Thank you for the, the coming oracle in 33 about Assyria, that you are going to use Assyria to judge Judah, but then you're going to judge Assyria itself. And uh, everything is in your control. Nothing escapes your notice or your, or your determination. And we thank you that you've shown us your sovereignty here. Father, also the glorious future when your son comes to rule in this promised new covenant. Father, we look for these things. And uh, pray for you to strengthen us and equip us for them. Now let us get distracted by this world. In Jesus' name, amen.